WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote, and welcome to our Camden Comic Con Spectacular. I spent weeks teasing it, but now you finally get to hear our panel with Jerry Conway, Larry Hama, and Louise and Walter Simonson. Fun fact Matt Lazowitz and I came up with about five pages worth of questions for these guys, and I think we got to ask about five questions total. Uh, they just kept riffing off each other, and the stuff they talked about was better, funnier, uh, more insightful than I could have ever come up with. Uh, they were amazing. I learned new things about Mussolini and Olivia Newton-John, and uh, the hour we got to spend with them was definitely one of the highlights of the history of this podcast and this website. Uh, my wife took a picture of the panel, which I'll attach online, but you can see everybody lined up at the table, and then me on the end, just looking at the camera with this beatific smile. Uh, that pretty much just sums it all up. Uh, in our warm-up segment, Adam McGovern stops by WMQ's table at Camden Comic Con to talk about his story in this week's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the Freshman Force, colon, New Party Who Dis anthology from Devil's Due. The, uh, he also talks about the story he couldn't get published because it would be too scary for Dave Mustaine and uh, why he picked a Slater card from our Saved by the Bell the College Years deck. Uh, just a word of warning, with both these snippets, they are live recordings, so the audio may not always be the best, but uh, no matter what happens, we love you very, very much. Uh, meanwhile, what's going on over at WMQComics.com? Well, please... Don't forget, we're giving away two tickets to Garden State Comic Fest in Morristown, New Jersey, June 29th and 30th. All you have to do is be our 600th Twitter follower. Help us grow the WMQ army. Um, we're also starting a new feature on the site, X-Man of the Week. Uh, that's a lowercase m. We're not talking about Nate Gray. Nate Gray is the worst. Uh, but we will uh, pour over the past week's X-Books and uh, decide in a given week who is the best X-Boy or girl. Uh, this week in our inaugural segment, the winner is Warpath from Ed Brisson and Dylan Burnett's X-Force. Uh, feel free to play along at home. If there is an X-Character in your Wednesday reads you feel is deserving of special recognition, email us at wmqgrams at gmail.com. Uh, and now, without further gum flapping, here are me and Matt and Adam and Louise and Walter and Larry and Jerry. A running gag for the, this particular com. Yeah, we're, we're opening our interviews by inviting you to choose a Safe by the Bell College Years trading card if you so desire. Yeah, by okay. no means required. Let's see. I may just have to shuffle them. Um, oh, wait. Oh, sorry. Mario turned out to be some kind of molester, right? So I can't pick no, him. No, no. He, uh, he cheated. He was, she was perfectly he's a, of age. He's a sex addict. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah? She was of age. Uh-huh. So there was, it wasn't creepy. He just cheats a, cheated a lot. Really? Okay, well, I'm taking this home then. Go. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> you know. Congratulations. There we on go. Your, on your, uh, on your selection. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. We're, we're halfway, about halfway through the day now. I can't, how is the con treating you? Very well. This con treats me better than any con. Um, you know, it's the most... Uh, efficiently organized and everybody is you know just coming forth to help you like sit your table while you're you know away at a panel or getting you know uh, this minute Starbucks drink or other caffeinated beverage etc and you know we had a panel that went very nicely and uh, you know uh, it's a vibrant crowd and uh, new people are finding out about my comics so, uh, what was your panel? the panel was called real people unreal talk and it was about comics 
which intersect with the world we know by having historical figures uh, or con contemporary real life people uh, involved in the comic. Uh, so we had Krista Cassano who had uh, worked on John Leguizamo's Ghetto Clown uh, uh, GN and uh, Dean Haspiel who worked a lot with, uh, with uh, Harvey Picar. Uh, Fred Van Lente, who writes uh, all these edu, edu comics like action philosophers mm -hmm. and action yep. presidents, etc. And um, uh, Margot Dubai, uh, Jennifer Hayden, uh, and uh, and myself, because uh, I've done a few time traveling, real people in unreal situations things myself. Yeah. Um, so you, when we talked to Bill and Miranda, they specifically mentioned you as one of the people who've really helped get this con on its, you know, out there and on its feet. How did you first, did you, you've been at all of the Camden? I have been at all of them, yes. How did you get involved with Camden Comic Con? You know, I'm not sure how they found out about me because I'm almost certain that they got in touch with me and not, uh, and not the other way around. Um, since then, yeah, I've become, uh, you know, they can't get rid of me if they wanted to, <laughs> and, um, uh, and yet, yeah, most years I uh, will um, spread the word amongst colleagues of mine in comics. You know, I mean, Krista Cassano was first here, at, you know, uh, on my uh, suggestion, and she's become, you know, regular. Um, this year, Stuart Moore, it was his first year, and, and things like this. So, um, yeah, it's just um, something that you really want to contribute to and see succeed because it's, you know, human scale. I mean, no other con do I always have at least I mean throughout the day people come up to me either adults who say they've never read comics and they want to start or like often moms and daughters with the daughter already says she wants to make comics so you know it's really um, injecting the future <laughs> of, of the whole medium and our livelihood uh, by doing this just as Adam and I go way back, yes. as he was one of our regulars at Dewey's, where I worked for many years that I have spoken of many a time. And so, this thing good to see Adam again as we try Shout to catch out up to Dewey's. Yes, I uh, only when I head south usually do we meet up. Though I guess we've also met up at East Coast Comic Con. Indeed, so yes, yeah. which is coming up soon. Yeah, like two-ish weeks, right? Yeah, Something. Yeah. Well, oh, it's May. Well, yeah. Yeah, May, May, mid-May. Seventeenth and eighteenth. Thank you, thank yeah, you. Good. Now, now, maybe I'll get there on time. <laughs> I uh, uh, and it will be, and that will be two days after uh, the comic that I'm uh, most soon going to be in uh, debuts, which is Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and the Freshman Force uh, from Devil's Do. Yes, I have a story in there, uh, kind of a Matrix send-off called The Matriarchy Reloaded, uh, <laughs> with uh, with artist Jason Gunger. And um, uh, yeah, Dean and Krista have a story. Um, uh, Marguerite Dubai has an interesting kind of video game-esque story, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of other interesting uh, stuff in there uh, by creators who I'm now going to unintentionally slight by forgetting their names. But look up <laughs> AOCComic.com; it has its own page, and you will learn all of the wonders of it. 
Now, is, is AOC aware that this comic is, is soon to exist? She is. Uh, TMZ got the word to her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the um, Noted uh, comic book journalism website, TMZ. Yeah, exactly, yes. <laughs> well, you know, there was a time when, uh, when I wouldn't have foreseen noted investigative uh, political journalism uh, outlet, uh, you know, uh, Teen Vogue. So, you know, I mean, yeah. uh, and, uh, yeah. and now they're now them and you know Vanity Fair are among the best. You know? um, the uh, uh, yeah, the we were not sure. I think even the publisher was a little stumped as to whether or not they were going to get the word to AOC herself. But then, yeah, it popped up, you know, in the feed that uh, TMZ said, you know, somebody's turning you into a superhero. And she said, oh, you know, it's very flattering. I'd like to think that you know some little girl who you know could look up to me and you know think, oh yeah, okay, I can be that person, be it the congresswoman or the superhero. <laughs> We know she's we know she reads comics, but at some point she tweeted the uh, the Rorschach line trapped in here. That's yes. that I think was the catalyst more than anything else for Josh Blaylock, the publisher of Devil's Due, to like embark on this. Yes, and of course since then you know she is you know she has crashed you know Reddit threads on you know uh, LGBTQ characters in video games and stuff. So yeah, she's got geek credentials. You know, she is, yes, she, she, she may be six years away from being able to run for president, but in terms of, you know, the emperor of geekdom, she's already well in the running, definitely. (laughs) So, what else do you have lined up, work coming up? Uh, The AOC thing is, is, um, is the main thing, after which I shall sink into obscurity and alcoholism. No, um, (laughs) I, um, uh, other than that, I am uh, lining up, uh, a number of pitches which have not yet uh, found homes, but for which I have high hopes. Um, the uh, well, I was the, actually the same day that I was made aware of the AOC anthology. I was also asked to pitch for the special Megadeth issue of Heavy Metal and was rejected. Uh, so yes, I did. Um, I did this kind of surrealist thing based on Angry Again, their song, and um, drew upon. As I found in my internet research, some of like uh, uh, Dave Mustaine's tortured relationship with rehab, and uh, as par- and uh, but the editor told me that it was too surreal and not straightforward enough, and that the uh, and that drawing on the rehab experiences might spook Dave Mustaine. So if I indeed do never go further in this industry and rapidly decline into alcoholism and, uh, and obscurity, at least I can tell somebody's grandkids that I was once rejected for an anthology because it would scare Dave Mustaine. Uh, That's saying something. But uh, other than that, I'm, yeah, I'm working on a lot of, uh, I'm working on an anthology of kind of conceptual remixes of Bowie songs with a few artists. Uh, some people uh, who have done sample work for it are Peter and Maria Hoy of Coin Up Comics and um, uh, oh my god I'm going to blank on who else is like produced and so uh, it's time to move on uh, I have we are a noted Bowie positive podcast so yes. wonderful wonderful keep your eyes open uh, for this then um, the um, and I have uh, with Charles Featheroff a really fantastic uh, artist I'm uh, working on a graphic novel which reveals uh, the uh, lycanthropy outbreak 
that was dealt with by um, Louis Pasteur and Florence Nightingale during the Crimean War uh, that our history teachers didn't have the guts to tell us about. You're, you're hitting the Crimean War and lycanthropy in one book? You're, again, this is one of these ones where it's like, this is sort of softball across the plate for me. <laughs> uh, history and, and werewolves are two of my, like, you know. That's good. I'm glad to know that we already have the Crimean werewolf media in our pocket. Dang so right. <laughs> I'm reading um, uh, These Savage Shores from Vault Comics, Ooh, which yeah. also has shape-shifting monsters and is about colonialism in, uh, in uh, India around the same time as the American Revolution. So it's a fascinating uh, you know, bit of uh, also uh, real-life uh, history that you know we get kind of deprived of in school in America, uh, with of course a horrific uh, uh, tinge, and that's that's fascinating. Um, I um, am loving anything by Al Ewing on the mainstream side. Uh, you know, particularly of course, Immortal Hulk is just like I look under my bed. You know, after <laughs> after reading there, so I can't hide the comics there. So you know, <laughs> um, and um, uh, looking forward to um, well, I mean, yeah. One of our panels today, uh, uh, Jennifer Hayden. She has. She's just done in the in the strumpet. Uh, she did a sto short story, which is basically she says a pitch for her next graphic novel, which is about a at one point really well known woman illustrator who had a brief comic strip in the '40s, and um, unbeknownst to Jennifer, lived in the apartment that Jennifer then uh, grew up in in New York in the 1970s. So, so it's this weird spiritual, you know, uh, connection. Uh, so that's, yes, that's some of what I'm reading and I'm no doubt going to be sliding a lot of other people because there is much fascinating stuff out there. Grumble by, um, uh, by Rafer Roberts. Uh, it's like there are many, as we know, dark and bloody fairy tale books out there, but there's basically two at the moment that I can take, and will grumble as one, and die by Stephanie Hans, and uh, Kieran Gillen is the other, because they just really start to mess with and you know reflect upon the genre, not just let's have the umpteenth thing where you know it's off with their heads and their heads actually stay off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and where can people find you online if you do so wish to be found? I, I will uh, consent to be. I, I will, um, you know. Uh, uh, admit my powerlessness uh, for the hegemonic, uh, you know, collective electronic consciousness, and um, so you can find me at collective electronic consciousness dot hegemony. No, um, I am on. Well, I'm on Facebook just under my name, Adam McGovern. I'm Twitter, which I intermittently pay attention to, is just at Adam No Space McGovern, and uh, oh, I am on Instagram, but you don't even want to try spelling my name there. I'm going to change it soon. I didn't really understand Instagram because I've been posting some preliminary images there of uh, the AOC comic. Uh, I did post a preliminary image of the werewolf comic and yet it disappeared so i got to, you know, go back and, you know, uh, change the past uh, for that. But I mean... Is this cracking down on werewolves? They declare themselves a vampire site? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. You know, it, it could it could very well be. It's like a quarantine on... Uh, on werewolves, I mean, uh, it's like a crackdown on <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and you see what De Blasio is doing with measles. I mean, imagine lycanthropy. So, you know. <laughs> uh, Adam, thank you so much for stopping by the table. This was a high point. Thank you so much. <laughs> WNQA.
Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to the big Marvel Legends panel here at Camden Comic-Con. Uh, my name is Dan Grote. At the far end of the table, Matt Lazowitz. Uh, we host a weekly creator interview podcast called WMQ&A, which you can find at WMQComics.com. And that is enough self-promotion because you are not here for us. You are here for our guests. Uh, from my right, we'll go down. We have Louise Simonson, Larry Hama, Walter Simonson, and Jerry Conway. And uh, yeah, Matt, Matt was correct. We are just going to barrage them with uh, questions from, from each of their uh, illustrious careers. Uh, I wanted to start with, with Jerry. Uh, you were one of, the, uh, kind of one of the original letter hacks, you know, the writers who came up in the letters columns of, uh, of the comics. I, I believe your first was printed in uh, Fantastic Four number 50. Uh, I'm wondering uh, how many times you wrote in before somebody was like, uh, hey, you got a lot to say. How about you fill, on, fill in on this issue of X? Well, I, I, I wouldn't call myself a letter hack. I mean, there were people like Mike Friedrich, who was definitely, you know, like, uh, dominated the letters. Uh, Pacquiao, uh, Floyd Thomas. But I was fortunate that I had a letter in Fantastic Four number 50. Uh, basically because I made a bad joke that Stan kind of, I guess, thought, well, that's that's funny. I was commenting on the first appearance of Black Bolt and said how much I loved the issue, the Marvel Masterwork, blah, 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 blah. And then I ended it with, uh, and in the immortal words of Black Bolt. <laughs> <laughs> that's how, that's, and I learned a lesson. <laughs> Always end with a joke. <laughs> Um, you were you were fairly young when you turned pro, correct? Yeah, I was 16. That's amazing. Actually, I was just about to turn 16. I had uh, written a story the summer I was 15, and uh, about two weeks later I turned 16. Amazing. Uh, do you recall, uh, and this is a couple of years down the line from that, but you know how you felt when you learned you'd be taking over Amazing Spider-Man from, uh, from Stan? <laughs> well, I always talk about the, the, the wonderful uh, arrogance and stupidity of youth, uh, <laughs> which was that as, as an arrogant and stupid youth, I thought, sure, uh, that sounds fine. Um, so I, th I thought I was up to it. Uh, but fortunately, I had John Romita as my mentor on the book, and uh, he uh, really guided me for the first year or so that I was working on the book, showed me how these, that character should be uh, plotted and how the story should be told. So I, I, was, I was handheld to that part of it. But I, I, when you're 19 years old, you know, you, you, you think that you can do anything and you have no perspective uh, and all of that is a real asset for a creator. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I just jump in. Yeah, please. Well. Yeah. One of the simply that, in, in line with what Jerry said, it's worth keeping in mind that in, I don't know what year you were, you started off doing Spider-Man in uh, 71 or 2. I got into comics in 72, you guys, not long thereafter. And I mean, I get questions every, every time someone will say, what was, what was it like to work on Star Wars? <laughs> <laughs> and you think, well, I sold my first cartoon in 1966. And, you know, and the thing is, you know, in 1981, 81, when I was doing Star Wars, it was, it was two movies. So it wasn't like, you know, you thought, I'm just doing, you know, I'm doing work, I'm cashing a check, it's, you know, it's, it's coming back to me, it's cash, I'm delighted. So, and that was more I got asked, what was it like to work on Jack Kirby character? Well, it was like me, Jack. You know, I, mean, I love doing it, don't get me wrong, I'm doing comics, I love doing comics. 
But it wasn't like, I mean, now, you know, especially the ancillary stuff of comics is worth billions of dollars. It's a whole different deal. But when we were doing it, but A, we were young, but also it wasn't a big deal. The business was dying. We thought, yes, <laughs> yes, seriously. Yes. Hands up. How many people thought we had like five years? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Howard Shagan felt the same way. We, we would discuss this. Less. Yeah. And we got in the, we got in the comments because we thought, geez, in five years, can't be outside. We'd have to go get real jobs. But we want to do comics, and we're going to do them right now while the business is still around. Yeah. yeah <laughs> like, you know, like a real job. I mean, yeah. My first. Page rate for full pencils at Marvel was twenty three dollars a page uh, for yep. Iron Fist, and I could barely do a page a day. I mean, so if I, you know, been flipping burgers at you know Burger King, I would have been making more money. Yep. And uh, but that's that's the lesson. When I found out that Doug Munch was getting fifty bucks a page, first script. Yeah, oh, wow. at the same time, and that he could write like four scripts a week. What's wrong with this picture? <laughs> you know? Why can't I get some of this, some of this uh, graft? <laughs> uh, so that's when I started campaigning to try to get writing work. And it took me until 1981, 10 years. Wow. Um, you know, it's it's funny, you mentioned, you know, describing kind of not thinking you will be there for a while, comics being a dying medium, you know, I, I feel I feel like there's always been that, you know, forever comics are sort of like the the Aunt May of entertainment genres, <laughs> you know, per permanently on, on death's door until a few years ago when she got mysteriously de-aged. Yeah. <laughs> they were still creating, oh, uh, no, you're right, Aunt May's changed, comics to this day still five years from the end. Yeah. <laughs> And one of these days, we'll be right. <laughs> <laughs> but it was all, you know, like, like Stan always used to tell that story about going to a cocktail party and people saying, well, what do you do? And he said, oh, I'm in publishing. <laughs> <laughs> they say, well, what kind of publishing? <laughs> um, young people's publishing. <laughs> 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 he had like, you know, a half a dozen you know, until he finally had to. Well, I do comic books. People write those. That's right. Somebody writes those things. Yep. What was what was sort of I guess keeping in in, in with this theme? What was sort of the big portent of the end times? Uh, you know, in in that early period for you guys. <laughs> Superman was selling a million copies a month in 
is that uh, the you know what would happen? The comics had a very odd business model, and I don't know as much about it as you guys do. But they would send out, let's say, send out hundred thousand copies of a comic book, and seventy percent of those would, in theory, be thrown out or returned. You'd have a thirty percent sell through, and whatever the sell through was, it was in the mid thirties, maybe in the early seventies, and it was dropping pretty much month to month. So whatever the sales figures were, you could see that fewer and fewer comics were being sold in terms of percentage of the work that was coming out. That was one of the other indications that where we thought, well, you know, what's we'll it now? And there was a whole racket going on with the return. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Ripping the, the title oh, off, yeah. you know. And they were also doing things like taking a book that was 20 pages and then having the artist draw one page as a two-page spread that they would then uh, print as two pages, but pay the artist for one page. Oh, it was so turn it sideways. The art page yeah. sideways and draw. So, so yeah, those, two pages. When uh, was that, in the middle 70s? Somewhere yeah, in there. If you, go, you look at those comic books, like from DC ever do that? Yeah, it, was, it was like 74. But you look at them, you'll discover, you look at those middle spreads, and they are much rougher line work. They're, well, that's because they had to stack them up. <laughs> well, that was it. They were, they were reduced less, much less than the regular page. And the idea is you have a regular page of art, you do it big. When they shrink it down, all the mistakes get smaller. And so it looks more polished. But when you're only shrinking this double page spread down a little bit, it looks so polished. And you can see it. You can look at those comics at that time. You can really see it in those big spreads. There's also a lost generation who used photostats. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. So yes. it, was always, it always looked crappy. Yep, it always did. <laughs> and then they also made cutting out page, you know, pages of art. So you would have a thirty-two page comic, and the lowest Marvel ever got that I remember was seventeen pages. Yeah. You, you know, they would have a thirty-two page comic, but they had twenty-two pages of story, and that was twenty, and then eighteen, and then seventeen. And there was a while where they had a half a page. I don't remember. I don't remember. Well, that was part of the, the two page. The two page right? thing yeah. they were doing. So the, yeah. so the, you know, you can see also those half pages. They were half yeah, pages. They were like the ads on the bottom half. Yeah, yeah. yeah they have a hostess ad on the bottom half. Mm. Yeah, the 25 page stories that were actually 23 and a half page stories. So you could, you could just see lots of stuff going on that indicated comics were toast. <laughs> <laughs> and they would have been if Superman and Lucas hadn't come out. And uh, Bill Sewing hadn't invented the direct sale market. So. Yeah. yeah, Sewing uh, really did a lot. Wasn't just credit. Yeah. William Gaines of the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, makes sense. And, and he was a sweet guy. Yeah, you know Phil well. I assume a little bit. I didn't yeah. know him well. He was he big was on sort of the, the vendor game. circuit William before. Were, I mean, for the kids here, uh, William Gaines was the guy who actually created comics. Uh, he he was a printer uh, agent who came up with the idea of bundling newspaper comic books together, uh, newspaper cartridge books together. Sure. Selling them on the newsstand. So without him, none of this would have happened. Which is one of the early, early comics of 64 pages. It was like when you folded up the various sheets that made up the Sunday funnies, you eventually got to a 64 page comic book you could then print and sell in the beginning before they had sort of new material for that format. <laughs> that and the other fact, which I love, is that early distribution. Don't repeat this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but distribution was pretty uh, uh, shady. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, the the deal was when yeah. comics and magazines were taken, were going running in the thirties. Uh, the people who had major distribution chains with lots of trucks 
and lots of ways of getting material from the printer to the newsstand was the mob because they had gone through prohibition. Yep. And once, once the prohibition was done, then illegal liquor was done. And then suddenly you had all these trucks that were all, all periodicals were delivered by truck. And the Teamsters, you know, the, yeah. put the pieces together. Also, every comic and almost every magazine in the entire country is printed in one place in the middle of the country called Sparta, Illinois. And Except for, uh, except for Charlton. 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 That's right. Except, yeah, Charlton. Well, Charlton is a whole other story. Yeah. 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 Do you, you know about the about Charlton Mussolini? No. no. Uh, ooh. Oh, tell ooh. us about the Charlton Mussolini. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> At last, the story I have heard. heard. <laughs> Good story. I, I heard this from Vinny. Well, <laughs> <laughs> a reliable witness. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, before World War II, um, you know, the, the Charlton presses in Derby, Connecticut were already moribund. Yeah. And uh, so, Old Man St. Angelo, Charlton, who was also like one of the last of the mustache dudes. <laughs> uh, and, and Charlton was the, was the money launderer for the entire Northeastern mob. Uh, yeah, because that—that's where that Dick Giordano story comes in. You know, where, where Dick went in there and like turned everything around, uh, and it was starting to sell. And the old man Saint Angelo called him into the office. He goes, "Hey, Dick, got the book of that Freakers uh, here. The uh, books are selling." You know? and, and Dick says, well, "Isn't that what they're supposed to do?" <laughs> <laughs> and the old man goes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. St. Angelo came up with this idea to, to sell, to give, or no, sell all the moribund presses to Mussolini uh, so he could make uh, fascist uh, propaganda comics. So he had this whole like sales pitch about, oh, do these propaganda comics and we will sell you the presses. And all his capos came to him and said, uh, but boss, uh, none of the presses work. <laughs> <laughs> they were all like busted, you know? <laughs> and the old man looked at them and he said, so, <laughs> sink the boat. <laughs> so they waited till the boat got in the middle of the northern Atlantic, <laughs> and they sank the sucker, and they said, hey, you boats. <laughs> Yeah. It's a lot more real than you think. It's like the cover somewhere of Blue Beetle slugging Mussolini. That's way better. It's like real life. But you don't want to know about the returns. That's a longer story. That's a much longer, and it involves mathematics. Math is hard. Yep. Weezy, I'm, I'm actually interested because I, I don't know that I've ever actually heard this story before. Um, obviously, you and Walter have both been working in the industry for a long time, but how did you two actually meet? We got we were introduced by uh, friends of ours and Archie Goodwin, who Art Walter was doing. I was I was Anne's friend, and we would switch babysitting back and forth, and and Walter was um, 
working with Archie on yeah, yeah. Manhunter. And I was working in advertising promotion when we met, but I had been started working at Warren yeah, by the time we were dating. You were at Warren at that time. Uh, yeah, when we, when we started dating. Um, but you yeah. weren't when we met. Right, we, and neither of us actually remember for sure the first time we met, but we remember talking on the phone the first time. Because <laughs> <laughs> Anne and Archie had gone out on, a, it was that anniversary, and they'd gone out to dinner, and I was watching their kids, and uh, I had seen Manhunter pages. And I really liked them. I loved, I loved particularly the way Walter drew hands. So Walter calls up to talk to Archie, and I answered the phone. And I was like, oh my god, you're the guy who does those fabulous hands. And that's- <laughs> I'm going to marry this woman. <laughs> and, the, and the rest is history. <laughs> I heard the conversation from my end too, actually. So. Yeah, isn't that funny? Well, we don't, funny. We don't, we're not, don't remember for sure the first time we ever saw not each other face certain. to face. Yeah. But well, well, we have the I time, Archie. 66. At the time, Archie and uh, Ann and Lizzie lived in the same neighborhood in the west side. I was over in Brooklyn. I thought you were in Queens. No, I was in, I was in let's see, 74. <laughs> Let me think about that. Weren't you, weren't you rooming with... No, you know, I didn't room with Alan. The phone conversation was in when I was still in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. Because I can remember standing in front of the mirror talking to Weezy. Well, I remember when you were in Brooklyn because you were in Wade's place. That's right. Right, right. right. Was okay. And Gray used to live there, too, somewhere. Right. Right. And Gray was Marlowe's. Gray Marlowe. In fact, Gray Marlowe lived over there. He, uh, I was doing Manhunter. I, uh, Steve, uh, oh my, my, I remember Andy one. Uh, from the Joker's five room. Steve Mitchell. Steve, Steve Mitchell was there at some point, and we wanted to, I was going to give uh, Manhunter a gun, and I think Steve Mitchell suggested a Mauser because it just looked so cool. And it turned out, talking to Gray at some point, it turned out Gray had a cast iron, full size, life size Mauser model. <laughs> cast iron. Nothing <laughs> moved. It had all the outside detail. Oh, he had, I used to think when I first met Gray, I thought he was like one of the few adults. <laughs> Until I found out that he had a complete Black Hawk uniform. <laughs> and that he would wear it. <laughs> awesome. But he also had a complete cowboy suit. Yeah. You know, that. Why uh, borrowed his mouth. Yeah, he had a, a, a complete John Wayne cowboy suit with the chaps. And he had the big chest wow. with that, that wow. big. Uh, did you, hear his fencing, did you hear his fencing in the park with and uh, meeting Basil Rathbone? Yep. That was a month. You ever hear that? No. You, got, you guys don't know who Basil Rathbone is. Good <laughs> for you. A few of you will. Basil Rathbone was an actor back in the 30s and 40s and 50s who did a lot of swashbuckling stuff early. Got into sword fighting. Eventually, Robin Hood with Errol yeah, Flynn. Yeah. He was the bad guy in Robin Hood. And he was also the bad guy in the Mark of Zorro with Adam Sherlock Holmes. And Sherlock Holmes later. Yeah. But he was a wonderful actor. Um, when he did, he did uh, Captain Blood originally with Errol Flynn, and they had a fence, he was a bad guy in that. He apparently got interested in fencing and became a very good fencer, much better than Errol Flynn. But he became a really good Flynn, and the story I got, and you may be able to correct me, is that back in the day we could still go into Central Park and play around in ways that would probably be frowned upon now. <laughs> Gray was in the park with a friend of his, I don't know who, and they were fencing, they were just practicing Fencing. I don't know if they were using pays or other. I don't know what they were fencing. What they were fencing, and people would gather. You know, you'd kind of gather around watching because it was just really cool. And there was an older gentleman watching them. And after they were done, he complimented them, uh, Gray or both of them, on their technique, their stuff. And and Gray was a fan of old stuff, and he knew he'd just been complimented by Basil Rathbone. <laughs> <laughs> walking through the park and stopped to watch. Uh, I wonder if he was wearing a costume. 
Well, you know, the thing well, is, the thing is like, you know, Gray used to, like, put on his whole cowboy suit and go out. And he had a horse named Autumn. And he'd, like, get on Autumn and ride around wearing his cowboy suit. And, you know, <laughs> stuff I never knew. Secrets of the comedy. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, Ed, Ed Davis uh, did a, a giant portrait of Gray on on the horse, twirling the... the did he really? Wow. Around. Yeah, it was like gigantic. And I, when I first saw it, I thought it was a, a suit print. I thought it was a color photograph. Right. And it was good. just, and Ed had drawn it with magic marker and AB markers and colored pencils and Dr. Martin. It was just a mismatch, but it looked like a, looked like a photo. Uh, yeah. Gray was a, quite an interesting guy. <laughs> I used it as one of my earliest stories. I used Gray as a model with the continuity. Gray was there. I had to draw this. It's like the back shot of the guy's head from the back angle. But I drew, you know, Gray sat for me for two seconds. I drew him out. And it actually came on me. I can still see Gray in the drawing. It's very cool. Nobody else will know. Well, not you guys. <laughs> but I won't tell you what job it is. You'll have to look and find it. He used to dress like a riverboat gambler. Yeah. <laughs> um. but, he, but he could pull it off. Yes, he could. Yeah. Uh, Jerry, getting back to you for a second, uh, you were you were editor in chief of Marvel for a little bit. Uh, curious, what were some of yeah? <laughs> well, uh, you know, what what were some of the challenges of of, of that position? Well, um, it was an awkward position because I inherited uh, I inherited the staff, mm -hmm. um, and since I had left Marvel for a year, uh, year and a half, to go over to DC, mm -hmm. uh, there was resentment over the fact that I had come back and taken the top job. And there were people there who just felt like they should have had a shot at it, which is probably true. Uh, also, I was 23. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I was 23. And um, I had immediate problems with a couple of writers. Artists who were fairly protective of their material and mm -hmm. didn't really want any oversight. The problem was that everything was late, and uh, you know, it was kind of a chaotic situation. All of it expanded itself from uh, being 12 titles a month to 20 titles a month to 45 to 50 to yeah. 110 titles a month. And, uh, we were really losing money. And I got into a fight with one, with one or two of them, and uh, I just said that you know, that was not the dream job that I wanted to have. Uh, so I left. Thereby cementing my, my another aspect of my career as the shortest term editor of Marvel. I think that year there was something like six editors. Well, well there was a, there was a list on the editorial and editor in chief office at one point on yeah. the bullpen. With there had a list <laughs> of all the names and <laughs> Ekpos. <laughs> I don't remember all the names <laughs> anymore. Just like first there was Stan, then it was then it was Roy, right. then uh, Len, Marv, me, uh, Archie. Right. And Archie stayed for I think two years, and then then the shooter came in. And I think I think one of those guys came back. I think one of these on there twice. Might have been Mar. I know maybe Mar yeah. asked out somebody else. Yeah, I think Mar was it was it was in there uh, twice. Yes. So it was really funny. I mean, it was if you if yeah, you weren't the editor in chief, I mean, you know, your name is here. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I never got my name here. It didn't work out. You just stayed around the office. Huh? More. More. <laughs> I don't know 
note that why well, you were recently name dropped in Andrew Baker's Criminal. Was I? Yeah, uh, where there's an it was a two issue arc about a comic book artist from that from that era, and you were decked by him. <laughs> uh, well, I probably deserve it. <laughs> That's probably true. So uh, during during your time at DC, you created a lot of characters that people probably know from TV, Firestorm and Dixon and Felicity Smoke, but what I'm kind of curious about is you're listed as co-creator on Jason Todd. Yeah. Well, I'm listed, but, but not, uh, I'm not officially a co-creator because there are no co-creators, there are no creators of the movie that Jason Todd. Oh, yes. Like spontaneous generation. Yeah, it's just right. they, so, just, they occur. So that's how Jason, you just sort of sprung fully formed yeah. like Athena. Yeah. Okay, I'll, we'll, we'll let that one be then. <laughs> Probably a way of not giving money to people to create these characters. Yeah. Well. Think yeah. so? That's, where, <laughs> you know, that's just a kind of random guess. DC is known for derivative characters. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But be that. Uh, no, I mean they, they have a, they have a policy, and that, that's their policy. So other characters they're very generous. So you know, to give them credit where credit. Mm -hmm. Very good to me over the years. But they are kind of arbitrary. Yes, well, yeah. I mean, if they can find a way to find to, to yeah. pull it a derivative character, they will. So, I mean, for example, uh, I get paid a, a small bit of money for appearances of Killer Frost on The Flash, but I don't get paid for, for Alter Ego because that was a derivative character created by a different writer and they brought that character back and another version. So <laughs> it's a weird, you know, so, it's self-justifying, but you know, they, that's, they're the arbiters of it. And do that. Well, you know, Bob Larkin used to get a check every year for that Hulk poster. Oh yeah. The one with well, it's just his head. Yeah, it's yeah. head. I designed that poster. Oh. Well, thanks, Larry. <laughs> On behalf of Marvel, thank you very much. I, I, never, I never got a cent, but like, you know, because it was originally the house ad in uh, Superman versus Spider-Man. Uh, but you know, Bob said, I was talking to Bob one day. And he said, "Yeah, I used to, I got a check every every year for like fifteen years." Yeah, and, and, I, and I, a lot of characters for G.I. Joe. What? You, you created a lot of characters for G.I. Joe. I created all the G.I. Joe. Yeah, right. So yeah, but I, mean, I don't get anything for that because right. it's all over the head. Right. So but, there, there are worse cases. But, you know, the uh, after one year, the check doesn't show up, so Bob calls up Marvel and says, no, I didn't get my check, you know? And, and, and they said, oh, we decided not to pay you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Bob was like, what? <laughs> so it's kind yeah, of that's arbitrary. That's totally arbitrary. It is. Yeah. My favorite. Unless you have paperwork. Well, I get a little I get checks. With a, you know, I'll get a reprint check from Marvel. I'll get a reprint check from DC. The ones from DC usually are pretty clear what you're being paid for. Right. I'll have 500 listings of digital downloads of 15 to 35 cents each. Right. I'll make a couple hundred bucks or whatever it is. I got one from Marvel. Yeah, I got one from Marvel. And I'll be, you know, a few hundred bucks. 
And the marble, the, the, the little flap that's attached to that tells you what it's for, will say 379410X396. Right? <laughs> and that's what it says. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, okay, that was a great story. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's the one where Beta Ray Bill. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But Marvel has also been very generous to me and sometimes in some of the movie stuff. So yeah. I, I have, it is very arbitrary, it's very strange. And Marvel, Marvel does not pay for overseas reprints. No, they don't pay overseas Whereas reprints. Whereas DC does, we get a nice, a, does, nice yeah. overseas check. My Thor's been reprinted at least three times complete in Spain, for which I don't get a dime. But they've oh, yeah. been over here, and I have gotten, I've gotten yeah. several dimes. So oh, yeah, yeah. And a little more. The last time I was in Europe, all these uh, French and Italian artists came up and said, "Oh, you must be this multi-millionaire." Every time I go to a comic book store, I see all your, I see your stuff, mm -hmm. you know, in, in reprints, and I said, "I don't get a cent." They were like, "Doesn't work like that." <laughs> Europeans are like, "What?" <laughs> you don't get well, they're, they're like that with us for everything. Right. <laughs> That's right. You don't have health care? Really? No parental leave? <laughs> what? What? Only two weeks of vacation? <laughs> Socialism, damn it. Yeah. Um. Larry, you, meant, you mentioned uh, you know uh, GI Joe. Touched on that briefly. Obviously, you you created all the all the characters. Uh, and you know, we talked a little bit about you know doing a Star Wars comic in the late '70s. Obviously, wasn't a big deal because Star Wars wasn't what you know the monolith that it is now. Uh, curious, you know, when Marvel first got the GI Joe license, you know, how in demand was that property? It wasn't. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and and uh, I was literally the last person that was asked. And, uh, up until then, toy books, toy license books, were the bottom of the barrel. Mm -hmm. they, were, you know, they paid the lowest rates because the uh, uh, licensing fee came off the top of the page rate. And uh, so, so Jim Shooter asked every contract writer if they wanted to write it, and they all turned it down. So then he started going around. He started at one end of the office and went to ed every editorial office and yes, every editor and every assistant editor and every kid that went out to get coffee. And, uh, even the kid that went out to get coffee. Uh, <laughs> and they got to my office and I've been trying to get writing work for you know, years. Since, you know, like I said, since, since I was doing uh, Iron Fist for 23 bucks a page. <laughs> and uh, I took it. And because uh, I was, I was literally the last office I was the last office. He never asked me. Yeah. I, I can't imagine why. Well, it's because they found the perfect guy. But literally, if they had offered me Barbie, I, I would have taken Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> now that's a comic I would have paid money to see. <laughs> <laughs> I would have written the hell out of Barbie. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you the all silent issue with Skipper. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, the all silent issue was because Denny, I think, lost the whole issue on his desk. <laughs> Remember what his desk used to look like? <laughs> it was just giant stacks of pages and things, and sometimes stuff would go missing in there. All of a sudden, we had to like churn out a complete issue in three weeks. You know, and I said, I, I, 
the only way we could possibly do this is like, what if there was like no lettering? So it didn't have to go to a lettering, <laughs> you know? He said, how can you do a comic book without lettering? I said, well, there just won't be any lettering. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, because in those days, you had to actually physically send the stuff you know, by FedEx and then get it sent back. And it was, you know, so it turnaround. a long turnaround before, yeah. the, before there were JPEGs you could just attach. Yeah. So um, that's how, that's why we did it that way. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the fastest we ever turned out a book. We, me and Howie Chaikin and Vinnie Coletta did the, a James Bond adaptation. Mm -hmm. um, one of the ice skaters. For your eyes only. For your eyes only. We did two issues of it in one week. Wow. Mm. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I, I wrote it in one day, and then how we, I think, canceled the whole thing in like two days. And Vinny inked it overnight. And we got it out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was really important back then. Yeah. Yes, uh, uh, and you know what? Very few people could tell the difference. <laughs> <laughs> that's when you begin to become jaded about the Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some stuff was really good. It was a really beautiful issue of Son of Satan that Russ Heath drew. Right. And it's gorgeous. It's really beautiful. But again, when you go back and read it, right toward the end, which maybe the next to last page or the third to the end, there's a page with no color on it. It's a big interior splash page. We get to the end, it doesn't really make any, the story doesn't make any sense. But you know, it's kind of a blue station, like, it's like Satan's dream, and I forget what they worked out, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And apparently what really happened, and I gotta say, I looked at it, I didn't, I did notice that that splash was not drawn by Russ, this interior splash page. But I, I read it, and I went, well, this doesn't make a lot of sense, but you know, comics, I, you know, you what they, you know, 50 cents right down where they were, it wasn't like a, Giant investment by time or anything like that. And it, was, it was out. And it was beautiful drawing. Russ did just fabulous drawing. A lot of Bosch stuff in there. Really cool. And uh, it turned out, I don't know who wrote the story, but I talked to Archie Goodwin, who was a writer editor back then. He's one of the best guys ever worked in the business, mm -hmm. from what I'm worried. And oh, it, was. it turned out something had come up on that page, that original page that Russ had done. I think maybe with the crucifixion, that the comics code rejected. Uh, they didn't turn much down back then, but they turned whatever it was on that page. I'd give a nickel to that page now just to see it. But I didn't see it, never saw it, I don't know what it was. But they turned it down. So Archie basically was handed this individual page at the end of this story, but they were so late they couldn't get it colored. There was no time to color it, no time to separate it, no nothing. So Archie wrote it, and when you read it, there's some giant explosion in the copy. It says, and the explosion is so vast, all the color is washed white. <laughs> and you know, it was it was this great solution. Almost and I just read it and went, oh, okay, you know. I, I, was kind of, I mean, I'd seen occasionally, I'd seen Russ Manning would once in a blue, he had a great explosion in, in Magnus Robot Fighter, where a guy made a robot made of sodium and water, he gets broken into crystals, and he explodes. And Russ had one panel, I think it was the top hit for the pit. Half third of the page, half half the page. It was all black and white, which made perfect sense in the context of what was happening. So Archie made it make sense, at least in the context of this page, if not in the context of the story. But that's why that 
black and white pages and all that kind of stuff. You know, that kind of stuff. It was great. <laughs> yep. Yeah, Archie was, Archie was a terrific guy. Yeah. And uh, one of the, there are very few people left, you know, that, that could write an eight or ten page story. Yeah. Archie was like the master of that. He could just, you know, in eight or ten pages, you know, introduce characters, have, you know, development at a real denouement. Yeah, it's a lost art. Well, you did Manhunter with Archie. That was those little chapters. Yep. And you, since we're sort of dovetailing off to Silent Issue, that last story after Archie passed oh. that you did yeah. as, pretty, as a silent issue. Archie and I did, we did this strip called Manhunter like a million years ago. I, I began doing that with six months to do this. I, I didn't <laughs> entirely appreciate my incredible good fortune, but I, I figured out pretty rapidly. When I finished that strip, Archie and I both thought, you know, maybe you should retire now. I'm not sure it's ever going to get any better than this. It's maybe as good as it's ever going to get. But we, it was an adventure strip. It ran in the Detective Comics as a backup feature. It was originally designed to be kind of an anti antithetical to Batman, so where Batman was dark and blue and black. Is that black. part of that Miles or Blue Handle from Gray? Yeah, oh, that's okay. why I, gave, I used that to give to okay. for, run. So I drew the Mauser. In fact, there's one close-up of the Mauser where I screwed the action up in the visuals because the, the, the thing was a solid piece. Right. And so I couldn't tell. You couldn't tell. I didn't have one what actually worked. How it actually cycled. How it actually cycled, yeah. so I couldn't get it. I didn't get it right. I mean, I'll, only you would notice. I was, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was pretty good on that. But we did, we did seven issues. Uh, chapters, six chapters that were, well, five were eight pages, one was nine, and one was 20, interview, and had Batman as a guest star. And, and when it was over, we completed the story and we, everything ended. I don't know if I want to give a spoiler for a story that's 40 years old at this point, <laughs> but you guys pretty much mostly know the strip anyway. But basically, there would be no more Manhunter stories after that with that character, unless you brought him back to life. So, which we didn't. So we, and we were done with the character. And for me, that strip was always me and Archie. I had no interest. I mean, I wasn't in the office, but I would never have drawn it for any other writer, even really good writers whose work I liked and admired enormously. I just said, that was the two of us, I'm done. And then over the years, DC could come back to us occasionally and say, gee, could you write a new Manhunter story and walk and draw it and we'll publish the whole thing and then do this extra story. And the problem was, I think for both of us, we did not want to do a story where it was like, okay, here's chapter five. Chapter five on page two, between panels six and seven, this is what really happened in that gap. And we thought, mm, I don't think so. And so we just, you know, we couldn't think of anything to do. Let me rephrase that. I couldn't think of anything to do. <laughs> so years later, Archie was asked again. He came back, and he came to me when he was in the office one day. I was in the office one day. He said, you know, I had an idea for a story we can do and it would come, it would be like an epilogue or a sequel to this original run, and it wouldn't screw it up. Because we figured, anybody else does Manhunter, it's not gonna screw it up for us. They might do it well, they might not, but we don't care, it's not gonna be us. We could screw it up. So he gave me the story, so we sat down in his office for about two hours, which we used to do in the old days, and we plotted out the whole thing. He had the basic idea and some other stuff. I added some stuff, not much, I'm sure, and we ended up, I took notes, and I walked out of us with a new Manhunter plot for one more eight-page chapter, and and I was going to do it. And at the time, Archie had been ill for some years. He had lymphoma, and he'd been battling it for a long time. 
And one day I got a call from Paul Levitz one morning, on Sunday, I think, I got a call in the morning from Paul Levitz, who's the publisher of DC Comics, the guy I'd known since he was a gopher, to tell me that Archie has died. Now, it was not, it was, it was, it was not, it, was a sh it wasn't a shock exactly, because he'd been ill and he was just, you could see it, but, you know, you go in the house, you come out, you go in, you come out, you just thought you'd come out again, and then one time you didn't. And I, he hadn't written a script for me, because I hadn't done layouts for you. I'd been working what's called Marvel style. I would do layouts, he would write the script from that. And I just thought, well, I'm not writing a script for this, and I'm not interested in anybody else write it, so I guess I'm screwed. We're not just doing, the story's not gonna happen. And a couple months later, my wife, who was one of the best editors comics I've ever had, along with the other people <laughs> at this table, they say, she said, well, you know, you could do it as a silent story. I said, well. So I thought about it, and the short version is, it couldn't go on eight pages. I did a 23 page story. DC said, take whatever you need, do as many pages as you want. You can do as I cheated a little bit. If a guy has a newspaper with a headline on it, or it says, God from City Limits over right, here. Right, well, right, I cheated right. slightly. But I used to do my own sound effects, so I did my own sound effects again. I drew my own sound effects in that, in that round, and uh, did a 23 page chapter, and eventually DC put it together, and it all came out as one book. So it was really, and it was really, I was very pleased to be able to do it. I was a, sort of my last chance to work with Archie one way or another, so that's how it happened. Thanks. <laughs> it was her idea. Um, you know, a question for, for all, or all four of you. Uh, you know, what, is, what is one thing or, or, you know, one thing that you remember that kind of prompted the biggest Flood or, or or largest outpouring of, of letters, you know, either positively or ne or, or negatively. If you, you know, in the case of you know, I killed so and so, which which I know at least two of you. Uh... <laughs> Why don't you go first? <laughs> <laughs> okay, probably probably my I got the most letters when I killed Doug Ramsey mm. in the New Mutants. Poor Doug. Poor Dead Doug. Everybody, the readers hated him. The artists were bored with drawing him. <laughs> he was hard to write because you had to, in every story where you wanted to use him, use his power, you had to create a language for him to decipher because that was his power, was the ability to decipher language. We would get letters <laughs> saying, kill him, he's so boring, we want him dead. <laughs> so I said, okay. We'll kill him. We'll give him. I gave him a, a brilliant death. He died saving his friends. And um, then I got lots of letters. I still get letters. <laughs> how can I you still have, see people on the web. How can you have killed Don? My favorite letter uh, in, that, in that series of letters, although no, there were no death threats. My favorite letter was, I always hated Doug Ramsey and wanted him to die. But now that he's dead, I realize that he was always my favorite character. <laughs> <laughs> and those are my fans, and that's why I love them. Well, I got a call from Hasbro once, uh, where I was in the middle of the G.I. Joe run. They said, well, you know, we got this uh, animated movie coming out, and, and in the movie, Cobra Commander dies. So he has to die in the comic. I said, are you nuts? <laughs> Did you go off your meds or something? You know? And they said, no, no, it has to all be here. So I said, okay. And uh, we, we got like hundreds and hundreds of letters from kids. Did you forward them to Hasbro? 
<laughs> Hundreds of kids said, I will never buy another copy. The sales plummeted by 25%. So that was you know, the leverage I had a year later. They're like resurrected. I said, hey, look, you know, he's one of the few characters I like to write. <laughs> because he's such a jerk. You know? But um, yeah, it was. Uh, it was one of those things where I knew what the reaction was going to be. I'm sure. You just, you just stuck to it. Do you ever, do you always, when you kill a character, do you always know how you're going to bring them back? Pretty much. I do that. I never, I never kill a character that I don't know how I'm going to bring him back. I don't always do it, but I always set it up so I could. Did you have a, did you have a backdoor in mind for Doug? Oh, sure. Doug had the transmode virus. Uh, good point. I'm sure Poppy's back. I can't believe that some that took him what thirty years to bring the character back. He's a fun character. Oh well. What? what? Snake, oh well. Snake Eyes is really dead. <laughs> no. No. Forever. Well, how else could I bring in Dawn? I don't know that I've ever had a lot of negative mail on anything I did. Um, I did get uh, ambivalent mail. When I, on a book which I write and draw, like I said, Fantastic Four or Thor, I did the, my own letter columns. I would write them in the editorial voice of Marvel, but really it was me. I'd read the letters, I'd write the answers, I'd do whatever I choose like. And uh, I did one story in Thor where Thor gets turned into a frog. <laughs> and uh, it, it ran, it's really a parody of my own stuff. It's a parody of epic fiction. It's just a silly, you know, heroic thing. It was with frogs and rats. And uh, I did that, and I got mostly, I, I, mostly you get positive letters. Most of the letters I got, I might get, you know, one in, I don't know, ten might be negative. But the negative letters are often more interested in the positive letters. And so, usually in a letter column, I would run, like, two or three positive letters, and one of the negative letters just is interesting to answer the question, give make letter column more interesting. So the percentages, if you judge the letter column, weren't accurate as far as how the, the balance went. But for that book, that storyline, I got... I got a few negative letters, but what I mostly got, well, I got, say, 50% were positive, and 50%, usually it was like 95% were positive, 50% were ambivalent. So they say, is this supposed to be funny? <laughs> <laughs> or is this, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to take this story. Is this like a joke, or, you know, they were just genuinely puzzled by it. And I, and you know, and now, I mean, 35 years later, whatever it's been, um, the frog story, especially at Khan, is one of the maybe three stories I did in Thor, maybe four, that I hear most about. I've drawn a couple of frogs at this convention already. Uh, I get asked to draw the frog Thor. Uh, and I, and most of you at, at convention, again, my experience is on the web, you get a lot of negative stuff about anything. Mm. Mostly at conventions, people don't walk up to you and say, your stuff's awful. Now they might, but I haven't had that experience. Mostly they, they come up and they're positive in, in what, they, what they like. But, well, me anyway. <laughs> Remember how Howie used to deal with that? <laughs> I'm sure Ruth <laughs> Yeah, I, I remember going to, to some, back in the 70s with, with Howie. That, that was when people thought we were brothers for some reason. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Probably attitude. <laughs> it's true. But I, uh, 
And the kids, uh, some kid came up to Howard and said, I really don't like your stuff, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and Howard said, well, that's because you're really stupid. If you were brighter and, and had better taste, you would, you would understand how terrific my stuff really is. And you know, if you keep doing that all the time, it sort of starts to tip the balance. <laughs> You just have to be consistent. <laughs> well, I, had a, I had a fan come up to me at a convention years ago. I was doing the FL, and he, and he, was, he was probably he was in high school, you know, in eleventh grade, maybe twelve. And said, "I don't like your fantastic show. Why is that?" <laughs> I'm, I'm the wrong guy to ask. You don't have to, you know. And what's funny about that is, I eventually, a year or two later, I began teaching at a school of visual arts in New York City. I taught a course, you know, how to do comics, basically. And uh, he was one of my students. <laughs> and not only that, he became a good friend. But he was just, he was that guy. And, uh, and he was, he was very bright and very talented. Well, see, that's the thing, is that hating something is better than ambivalence. Mm -hmm. you, yep. can't, you can't ever change ambivalence. But you might be able to convince somebody who hates your stuff that, that he should. <laughs> he should. Yeah, yeah that's funny. I've been fortunate that I've never actually written anything controversial. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Let's see, I have a question here. <laughs> well, you know, obviously the, the Gwen Stacy uh, death. Yeah, Wait, that was you? <laughs> uh, it did produce some, uh, some negative feedback. Uh, I actually didn't go to conventions for about 10 years. Because <laughs> wow. unlike, uh, unlike some people here, people did actually come up to me and uh, give me their piece of mind. Yeah, okay. yeah well, yeah. Uh, so, you know, it was, uh, it was a different I'm just glad it didn't have more Twitter anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine now what would, you know. I don't know if there's anything that okay. could offend people to that because we've never done anything quite like that, you know. And now people die all the time and come back, you know, they're still alive. Yeah. Yeah. I told Stan, no, she's dead. You know, she was really dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he wanted me to bring her back right away after she started getting teeth at, at uh, college. Yeah, he was kind of like half paying attention when that was going on, no, right? No, no, he was fully on board. It's just that he claimed that he didn't. Remember the meeting where we all talked about it. He was like, oh, yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> I remember once I, I was working on a letter column, and Stan was coming down the hall. He was like, you know, looks in the office, looks, sees what I'm doing, pokes his head in, and he says, you know, <laughs> you should never forget. That you don't know which one of those kids writing in is in an iron lung. Then he walks away. I'm like, what? I never thought of it. It's not likely in 1982 that it would be like in Sam's generation. Yes. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, but after I thought about it, I thought, yeah, he's right. You don't know. You have to, that's how the attitude you have to take 
Some a letter in the column, and I and I did tell her that in Marvel's editorial voice that well you know I'm sorry she was doing that, but you know sooner or later Walt would not be drawing and writing drawing a book, and the chances are that maybe somebody else would bring Jane Foster back. If she kept trying, to, she, might, she could be there when that happened. Though. And, and no one old Jane Foster came back. So you got to be really careful with the letters, though. It's oh yeah. Yeah. And we are Earth people has become part of our lexicon. That's right. <laughs> say this to once a week, we are, we are Earth people. people. <laughs> Somebody thank her, whoever she was. And back then, I mean, again, comics was a smaller business. It wasn't, you know, we didn't have the internet and Twitter. The internet was just getting started when I was on tour in 83, 84. So a lot of the kind of public stuff that you would have, you know, trending, all that jazz, none of that stuff was going on back then. And you weren't getting letters from, you know, on emails, you were mostly getting snail mail. So it was a few letters in the comic, maybe a bunch, but not a lot on some of them. Some of them got almost no letters. In DC, editors used to sometimes write to write their own letters in order to <laughs> fill out a letter column. There weren't enough, there weren't enough publishable letters, you know. And the guy says, wow, this is great, this is the best thing since sliced toast. And you don't want to run that, it's not very interesting. Maybe once you can get away with it. But uh, it was just a different, it was a very different world. I used to get a lot of letters on blind paper written in pencil. Charles, <laughs> Charles David Haskell. Haskell. Yeah. <laughs> Our favorite guy. Letter hacks. Oh, yeah. But I, when we were putting out Crazy magazine, one day we got this letter, and it was like six pages or something, written. Every single part of the paper was covered. <laughs> and it was that, that compact on both sides. It was just this rambling, crazy stuff. And uh, so Jim Owsley, who's not the, the priest, the managing editor, he said, hey, you know, let's print the whole letter. <laughs> it took up the entire letter column, you know? Two, two pages, and we had to go use small type to get it all in. And the only editorial response, you know, which was written by Owsley, was, uh, golly, uh, Charlie, does your mother dress you funny too? <laughs> so we printed this, right? Ha ha ha, you know. And about two months later, Josie comes in. He's in an iron low. <laughs> worse, worse. Yes. So Josie, the, uh, she was the receptionist. She comes in. And she's got the, the, the post, the New York Post. Oh, and she says, Do you read this? 
there was a story in the New York Post about this guy in uh, New Orleans who, um, well, the, the, the main point of this letter that this guy sent was that he had made fun of Olivia Newton-John. So he wrote this six-page letter about how Olivia Newton-John was a saint and like, you know, he would like all like burn in hell for like ridiculing Olivia Newton-John. <laughs> and uh, so Josie shows us this, this article in the Post about this guy in New Orleans who uh, got up that morning uh, and uh, blew away his entire family with, with a shotgun because at the breakfast table they had been making fun of Olivia Newton-John. And we went, wait a minute. The guy was from New Orleans, his name was Charlie. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, no. And, like, oh. and Josie, I remember what Josie said. She said, because at, uh, at the end of the article, they said the, 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 the guy had disappeared, and they, they were afraid that he had gone to LA to like uh, confront Olivia Newton John, and they didn't know where, where he was. And Josie says, I know where he is. <laughs> He's on his way to New York. They actually busted him outside of Olivia Newton-John's house. Yeah, but that was that was a, an object lesson on what not to do with a letter call. Yeah, that really got physical. Um. <laughs> Mm, man, how do you transition from that? We do have just a, we do we do have just a couple more minutes, and I wanted to get to uh, one of these questions that was submitted actually by uh, the uh, student reporters here at the uh, the Gleaner newspaper. They sent this in to me. Um, again, another question for the group: uh, Do you believe in the idea of a character being simply good or bad? Uh, you know, we used Cobra Commander as an example earlier because he's obviously an excellent jerk. But you know, do you believe that all char all characters, even the ones that are sort of most on their face, cackling villain or or you know flexing hero, are are or can be more complex than that? Sure. <laughs> I mean, they they mostly are. Yeah. I mean, my favorite kind of villains actually are the ones who see themselves as heroes. I mean, that's Apocalypse as I created him was he saw himself as saving the human race by making it tougher and tougher and tougher. Um, so, but he just didn't care too much, worry too much about collateral damage, and this is where he went wrong. Which, um, you know, it, so he sees himself as a hero from his point of view, but other people weren't so thrilled with him. So I think that this is this happens a lot. I think, I think you know the way you see yourself is not always the way the world sees you, no. and I think that's true in our characters as well. And, you know, and a, and a villain in, in, in fiction is. Sort of uninteresting if they just if they're just purely evil oh, and like yeah. cackle and go ha oh, yeah, how boring. evil am I today <laughs> you know but you know people they're much more interesting if they have uh, their own bizarre set of ethics right. and, and and some sort of moral code mm -hmm. that they stick to um, and that makes them you, you can identify with them you know and and they become more human. You know, when you when you just portray them as being purely evil, that's so unrealistic that you just you know. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I'm not particularly fond of crazy I mean of serial killers, for example, you know, who are portrayed as, as crazy people. Right. Because a crazy villain is I mean 
yes, they're unpredictable, but they're also fundamentally uninteresting because there's no story that you can tell with them where they come at all. Right. You know, yeah. A villain with red arms is a more interesting character. Uh, it can go from here to there. Uh, it gets worse or it gets better. It's in some way conflicts with the hero. Also, I like it when they switch them around. Yeah. You know, when like somebody you, you, you're thinking of as a villain all of a sudden like becomes a good guy. Oh, they do that in Game speaking of Game of Thrones. Yeah. I mean that that was that they, it's not comics, but it's brilliant in that in the way they operate yeah. that. Yeah. Well I, I had to do that to G.I. Joe because they presented me with the you know, Storm Shadow. It was a I, I looked at him and I said, it's the only Asian character in the whole thing, and he's a bad guy. <laughs> like, what can I do about this? And I said, okay, over the course of the next year, I'll just change him into a good guy, and I won't tell Hasbro. <laughs> that's what I did. You know? uh, and by the time he was a good guy, it was a fait accompli. Well, it has been an hour. It has been a delight. Uh, I want to thank all of you. Uh, Jerry Conway, Walter Simonson, Larry Hama, and Louise Simonson, everybody. Thank you guys for coming out. Yeah. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, the ability to promote your work on our site, and a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. Big thanks to our first and foremost patron, Steve Morris from Shelf Dust and the MNT. You can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox. Uh, finally, and most importantly, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views, and we'll see you next time. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.